Known for its strong democracy, pro-human rights stance and deep respect for the rule of law, it was a shock when in 2018 the general elections in Costa Rica saw an unprecedented polarisation of society and the strong advance of populist and conservative agendas. The shift was accompanied by a sharp rise in hate speech and expressions of discrimination and xenophobia. To me, personally, it speaks to a sense of fear and therefore is highly defensive and therefore feels that it is it needs to kind of protect and fight back. In response to this alarming trend, the UN team in Costa Rica began the rollout of an action plan on hate speech and in 2021 presented a landmark study on hate speech in Costa Rica. As we started working on this issue, we've had a lot of moments and a lot of conversations on where does free speech meet the work we're doing on countering hate speech and discrimination. Welcome to the United Nations Uniting Against Hate podcast. I'm Katie Dartford, and each week I've been talking to activists and experts who've encountered hate speech or are working to counter it. This week I'm talking to Allegra Bayocchi, the UN resident coordinator in Costa Rica, and I spoke to her about the study. It's funny because I would never, I'm sure many of us would never normally associate Costa Rica with a, a country that might have a problem with hate speech. It must have been a surprise to, to many people to find out that wasn't the case. <laughs> I think this is the misperception uh, around hate speech <laughs> that, in fact, it's so pervasive that it affects every kind of society. And, and I think we see it in Europe or we see it in uh, Northern Europe that I think is another place people would assume uh, would be least affected. But um, no, absolutely. And uh, I think what started as an open inquiry, you know, let's see if there's an issue of hate speech in Costa Rica uh, because the Secretary General had launched a global strategy. So in fact, the Secretary General was the first one who, for the UN uh, developed a global strategy on combat, combating hate speech. And he referred to it as, as a pandemic, in fact, because it was so, it spread to, you know, to all, all over, basically, using obviously social platforms, social media platforms. And so we said, okay, let's, uh, in Costa Rica, they use this word tropicalizar, tropicalize, I guess, you know, let's like localize this global strategy. And that's what set us off. And uh, and you're right, the, because the first reaction to the first study was this shock that happened in the country. So I think it was, as a, you know, as a foreigner, for me, it was very interesting to see how the country just couldn't believe it. And it like you said, no, it's not possible here in Costa Rica. And so a lot of the work we've done has gotten such incredible coverage because it is about, oh, my God, we can't believe it that this is happening in Costa Rica. And yes, and so the first study which was uh, done through artificial intelligence. And it was kind of this kind of social listening studies where you just go, you know, put a period of time and go through all social media, found that they had, there were over a half a million different kind of communications somehow related to hate speech, you know, some more direct, some more indirect. In fact, the study in the end broke down into direct hate speech, you know, with an intention to discriminate, with an intention to incite and things that were more generally offensive. So we found kind of both groups but yeah half a million for a country that has well I mean in general it has about five million people and obviously not all of them are on social media so it's it's a big number I mean really kicked off a big national conversation around hate speech 
So Costa Rica was the first country in the Americas to do this kind of study. What, what did you discover? First of all, we found there is hate speech. There's a lot of uh, hate speech and discrimination. And I know, of course, we could go down kind of the rabbit hole of what is hate speech. And, um, you know, and, we, and obviously, as we started working on this issue, and now it's about three years, we've had a lot of moments and a lot of conversations on, on where does free speech and the defense of free speech, which, of course, is fundamental to the UN, meet the work we're doing on countering hate speech and discrimination. And some of the work that's also been done globally on trying to define hate speech, because, of course, we know that there's a danger that the fight against hate speech is used to, to restrict, actually, the freedom of expression, freedom of opinion. Uh, so that's just maybe a caveat at the beginning. But what we found is um, is that it's a very polarized conversation that happens on social media. There are a lot of different messages, uh, as I said, direct or indirect. And uh, we really looked at who were the targets and uh, and how also that shifted, because one of the things we should say is that we've done now two studies. And so we've also been able to see how hate speech and especially kind of the targeting of hate speech changes over time. So in the first inquiry, we saw that there was a lot of focus on, on gender and women. That kind of seems to be a big constant, especially uh, it's a generic kind of macho uh, communication, but it's also really targeted towards women who are in a position of leadership. So as we saw women take a stance or, you know, become more prominent on social media, whether because they had a job, you know, we had a vice president who was a woman. We have a lot of uh, parliamentarians that are women. So every time a woman took on a lead role, you know, we would see an increase of targeting. We have LGBTQ issues. Uh, very strong. Uh, we have migration because Costa Rica is a country that has a very high level of migrant population, whether it's, you know, the population that's come into work, the Nicaraguans mainly, but also is one of the countries that is on the Central America route to the States. So we have a lot of you know, moving population. And so both of those groups are a big target of, of hate speech. And then it goes to the um, disability, uh, racism. We have Afro-descendant communities, et cetera, et cetera. So we saw that, you know, there was generic, there is hate speech, there is discrimination, and it is, it is very, it is targeted to very specific groups of Costa Rican society. So how did you go about carrying out the study? <laughs> we partnered with an in, in uh, an institution, it's called COIS, and they used artificial intelligence to do kind of social listening uh, and, you know, uh, tag words, basically. They, they sifted through uh, Twitter and Facebook because, in fact, Costa Rica is mainly Facebook. There's a lot, a, lot, a big chunk of its social media interaction happens on Facebook, which in a, in a few countries is now shifted. And so... It, it was basically social listening over these these platforms over a period of time. So, so you mentioned one organisation there. Did you work with anyone else on this? No. Well, the initial study was done with this with this institute called COES and the University of Costa Rica. But actually, one of the things we've learned through the work we've done is that um, it, it needs. Uh, a whole of society approach if we are going to combat hate speech. So over these past three years, we've now really built an alliance. So we have 
We have this institute, which is the one that does actually the artificial intelligence studies working with the University of Costa Rica. The University of Costa Rica has set up the first observatory because we want this to be a continuous effort. So not only when we've done these punctual studies, but we want this to become a, mon a regular monitoring that happens of society. Because, of course, hate speech is, is an indicator. It's like taking the temperature of where is your society, really. And so that's why one of the things that we found out with the second study, because it happened during elections, was a huge spike, a 77% spike in, in hate speech because we were during a pre-electoral period. Uh, and so we, the importance of having kind of this observatory, we built a partnership with the lawyers group of Costa Rica. They've actually helped us look at the kind of legal and jurisdiction around hate speech, which is, you know, it's, it's really evolving around the world. So we did a lot of work also on which countries have the best kind of jurisprudence. It, it's a new area in a way. And again, as I said, it's also a very tricky area because there is this issue of where, you know, how do we defend free speech as we address hate speech? And, and so it's really important, you know, to work with kind of the best templates. And so the lawyers committee or association basically helped us do a manual of what is existing jurisprudence so that it can help victims right now in Costa Rica. If you've been a victim of hate speech or you can go to this handbook, it's a handbook, and see what is already available for you to protect yourself. And in fact, the parliament has also been a huge ally because um, some of the women in parliamentarians have been the, the biggest, the, the, uh, the ones who have been the biggest victims of hate speech. And so, in fact, they've passed a law that is focused on um, protecting women in politics. And we have a few um, parliamentarians that have themselves now decided to take this on. And so very recently we had a high profile case of a woman, of a, of a woman, female parliamentarian that was attacked publicly online for some of the criticism of the government. And she kind of, again, publicly online said, I will pursue these people in justice, through justice, through the justice system, using the laws that we have. I will make sure, you know, this is a test case of do our laws work for us? Um, and, you know, we've had an opportunity to speak to her regularly. And it was so interesting because she said the moment she publicly said that a lot of these accounts, bots or whatever they were, disappeared. And so just this idea that there is accountability, because I think this is one of the issues. There's a sense that the digital space is a free for all and there is no accountability. So one of the things we're also trying to do is there is accountability, uh, whether it's just reporting through the, the actual Twitter or Facebook account, you know, that these are communications that can be considered either hate speech or discrimination, citing discrimination, or using, you know, whatever legal basis there is in the different countries. And of course, as you know, this is the debate of the moment with, uh, with seeing the changes that are happening on Twitter. Uh, and actually, we were also able to reach out to Meta, which is, is the owner of Facebook, because and uh, and and start a partnership with them, which I think has been also really interesting because they they came over to Costa Rica. We shared a lot of a panel and a conversation, you know, and and looking at their perspective and, and seeing how. They feel, you know, they're investing a lot on trying to mediate and clean conversations and avoid, you know, the ugliest side of some of the digital conversation we find. But I think it was also very honest in the way they've admitted that sometimes it's an overwhelming task. And so they realize that, you know, they cannot clean and protect or limit everything. 
You're listening to the Uniting Against Hate podcast from the United Nations. I'm Katie Dartford, and I'm talking to Allegra Bayoki, the UN resident coordinator in Costa Rica, about their pioneering research into hate speech. So what kind of conclusions did you draw up in terms of hate speech versus freedom of speech? I mean, we, we, one of the things we wanted to do is to really... Every time we talk about hate speech, we have to talk about free freedom of speech. Uh, but every time we talk about and vice versa. So the kind of two things have to live together to actually be able to be true. If you want to have freedom of speech, you need to be also uh, working against co- combating hate speech and discrimination because it, it, it's connected. And I see we see that. And I think when, when we start speaking, especially to women, but some of the people who had been targeted, you can immediately see how they feel there's now scared, scared to express their opinions, scared to put out uh, any opposition online or even in WhatsApp or even on Facebook. It doesn't only have to be on Twitter. You know, it's just this fear of a t- of being attacked. Um, and I think, you know, so we've had some very real cases on that. We've also had very interesting conversations with the media, the press, the actual press, not just social media, because one always assumes it's it's social media. It's actually any one of us. But, but through our investigation, we were also we looked at the role of the press in, in a kind of a dual role. We've had cases where the press has been the victim of hate speech, um, you know, and there's been a lot of conversations here in Costa Rica about, you know, some of the criticism the press has been under because they have investigated cases or criticized the government, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we, how sometimes they've been victims of hate speech, but also what role do they play? And one very interesting experiment we did is look at a, a, a fact, which was in this case, the killing of a migrant family. We had a killing of a migrant family here in Costa Rica. And we explored how that fact had been reported by different media outlets. And, you know, what was the title used? What was the, the focus of the story given? And we actually shared that with the press and showed to them, you know, by the, the way you cover a story can incite discrimination and hate speech. You know, I mean, obviously a basic example, oh, uh, you know, family of migrants is killed. Oh, of course, they must have been connected to drugs or surely they were doing something illegal. You know, that's a leading uh, thought that immediately will generate hate speech. So I think it was a very honest conversation with the press. And we need to do a lot more, you know, working with the press on how do they report, what's the background that they have on different issues that they report on, how much do they consult, you know, civil society organizations when they report on these issues, etc. But I think also the other fundamental takeaway, which is, again, not new to anyone, but it is education. And recently I was reading an article on Finland. Finland apparently has the lowest level of hate speech and um, and fake news, because again, that's another aspect, fake news uh, worldwide. And the, the interview was to, you know, why is that? They had two key factors. One is teaching from a very young age to question. Don't assume anything. Don't assume a fact. Don't believe a fact. And question a fact. Fact check. Uh, learn, you know, to to not take everything for granted just because it comes from you know a person you know or an official source, whatever. So just that that thought of question um, the information. And then the second was an, uh, the education around dialogue, around respect for the different different opinions. Just learning learning to debate. 
you know, a lot of schools teach debate and, and it is really about we can coexist in the world with different opinion. That's fine. We don't all have to agree. We can't, but we have to respect each other. And I think that's fundamentally the message behind any work on hate speech and discrimination. This is not about denying your opinion as long as it is not an opinion that incites violence, physical violence and hatred. But this is about being able to respect each other and coexist. Yeah, that kind of brings me on to my next question. How do you address the people that are currently perpetrating this hate speech? Yeah, I mean, we've found out who they are in terms of a generic profile because that came out of the study. So we were also able to, because the messages were geolocalized and we could also segment by age. So interestingly enough, we found that uh, the largest uh, number of messages came from urban areas and it, actually, and it came from male male and up you know from kind of 20 to upwards so it wasn't necessarily young it was like adults adult males including a lot of the kind of like later segments i don't want to call them elderly but mature mature and i think that also spoke to there's always this this feeling that it comes out of ignorance. And I think it actually showed us the opposite uh, because ur- urban populations are better educated and actually in Costa Rica, urban populations are also better off economically speaking. So it's not something that is associated with poor and ignorant, not at all. We saw the contrary. Uh, it is urban and probably you know well-educated. Um, and so I think to me personally, um, you know, as a woman, and as any woman leader have been targeted of, of target of criticism and hate speech online and discrimination, um, it speaks to a sense of fear. You know, this is a population that I think is the most affected maybe or feels affected by the changes in society and therefore is highly defensive in a defensive stance and therefore feels that it is it needs to kind of protect and fight back and so i felt that to me it was it was symptomatic to some of the changes we're we're seeing in society um that that they came from this group and so no we haven't i can't say we've spoken to them directly i mean we haven't because we don't have names you know we don't have names and addresses as such there's a lot of campaigns obviously that we do online and i think one thing that we've also been able to do is is actually put out a lot of different guidelines on you know 10 things very simple guidelines 10 things that you can do or 10 things that the media can do or 10 things that you know the the platforms can do so that we demystify the issue and to know how very simple actions can actually start making a difference maybe one thing that i will say is that especially when it relates to fake news, which I think is so clearly connected to the issue. We also know, and I think we've known it even more, and we all know it coming out of COVID. There is a part of us, maybe, of people, which is it doesn't matter how many facts you will present to me. If I choose not to believe or if I choose to believe otherwise, I will continue to believe otherwise. And I think this has been studied. It is a well-known issue now that sometimes there is just you know, a way of thinking or a way of being influenced that it doesn't matter how many, you know, real facts or counterfacts I can bring to you, you will, you know, you will believe that I'm manipulating those facts, etc., etc. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, once you've already had this kind of belief, then you're going to listen to the opinions of people that are sharing that same kind of belief, even if you're not really looking at the facts. 
No, and, and I think it's really known now. And and again, we've seen it on something maybe apolitical initially, like COVID, which eventually turned political, but we've, we see it all around us. So. Your work's been pioneering in the Americas. Have you shared any knowledge with any other countries? No, absolutely. I mean, we're lucky because we're also working with the, um, the Secretary General has a special representative, a special envoy on hate speech and genocide, because luckily... This is not something that affects us here in Costa Rica, but we know from our history that hate speech uh, has been associated to genocide. You know, obviously the, the cases of uh, former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. So the Secretary General has a special advisor on hate speech and prevention of genocide, I should say. Um, and so we're lucky to work with her. She's actually helped us with the work that we're doing here in Costa Rica, but she's also helped uh, do best practices and sharing experiences with other regions. So we do a lot of work with uh, our colleagues here in the Latin American region, but we've recently also started to connect with colleagues in, in Africa. For example, we had conversations with colleagues in Ethiopia. Um, and of course, I mean, every country has different dynamics, but I think there is there is something we can all learn from each other. And I feel from our experience, again, one of the things I really take away is, 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 the, is the artificial intelligence analysis. Because I think given that this is such a highly politicized issue, uh, you need to start with facts. And, and I think that's what really helped us here in Costa Rica, you know, to, say, to just you know, take a photograph of what was going on and then present this photograph back to everybody involved. You know, the actual social media platforms, the press, the parliamentarians, the government, anybody who was connected to this, this, this is what's happening online in your country. Let's talk. And I feel that to me was the best way for us to start to get into this, this space. And I think that if there's one thing I want, we want to do is kind of continue, I mean, with obviously being very realistic of what is the measure of success. You know, we always talk about this amongst our colleagues and we don't hope to get to zero, you know, net zero hate speech. Um, no, no, we can't. Uh, but I think if we can come out of this with a stronger coalition among the media, you know, to, to accept a number of red lines and, and kind of way of doing things, you know, a, a kind of level of professionalism in, in among journalists, a, a level of habits, which is, again, fact-checking the same journalists, you know, looking at your sources, amplifying your sources. So I think that, to me, is already a win. Uh, if we can get a general higher level of awareness in society to know this is, can be considered hate speech, this is inciting discrimination, that little joke or that little meme, my meme that you're forwarding, uh, look at it again. You look at it again from the perspective of someone else and think, you know, can this be offensive? Can this trigger something that I don't even realize myself? But wait a minute. Oh, now I see it. Now I see it. And I think we're all learning, you know. Look at it again and maybe you'll see something you didn't really see initially. But if you look at it from somebody else's perspective. So I think if we raise that level of awareness in society, that's also going to be a win. If we do give better tools for people to fight back, uh, I think that's definitely a win. You know, not everybody may want to fight back, but at least be given that option and know that there is a solid um, system of, of laws you know, and there's a, you know, in the police, there's an awareness of how to do this. I think that's also going to be a win. And then, you know, we're working also with the Ministry of Education. If we can get this issue better integrated into the curricula at an earlier age, 
you know, learning how to, you know, dialogue and respect and debate in, in curricula, then I think that's just going to be a win. So we're kind of focusing on, you know, where are the wins, which maybe eventually will make a change very realistically on how, you know, this is never going to go away. And so it's going to be a forever kind of issue. That's why it needs to be kind of integrated into the different structures of society. Thank you for listening to this series of Uniting Against Hate. I'm Katie Dartford. That was Allegra Bayocchi, the UN resident coordinator in Costa Rica, talking to me about their pioneering research into hate speech. To learn more about hate speech, go to un.org slash hate speech. And to find out more about the work of the UN on this and other important topics, go to news.un.org.